0: Fidèle au serment fait à la nation et au peuple tchadien, le maréchal du Tchad, président de la République, chef de l'État, chef suprême des armées, Idriss deby Itno, vient de donner son dernier souffle en défendant l'intégrité territoriale sur le champ de bataille. C'est avec une profonde amertume que nous annonçons au peuple tchadien le décès ce mardi 20 avril 2021, du maréchal du Tchad Idriss Déby Itno de suite de ses blessures au front Greetings 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 and welcome back to a new episode of the Number 1 Academic Podcast about Africa and the African Diaspora The Africanist I am your host Bamba and today I'm going to share with you an interesting conversation about the current political situation in Chad As you may know, on April 20th, a group of Chadian generals reported on national TV the death of President Idris Deby. The latter was reportedly killed by a group of rebels called the FACT, also known as Le Front pour l'Alternance et la Concorde au Chad, or in English, Front for Change and Concord in Chad. This group was formed on the eve of the 2016 presidential election in Chad and is led by Muhammad Mahdi Ali. Muhammad Mahdi Ali is a veteran rebel exiled in France for several years before returning to the neighboring Libya in 2015 where he formed the fact and fought alongside Libyan commander Khalifa Aftar. Since its inception in 2016, the fact has used war-torn Libya as its back base where they prepare and coordinate attacks against the Chadian regime. Since the death of Idris Debi, a transitional military council led by Debi's son, Mohammad Idris Debi Etno, has taken over. For a more in-depth analysis of the current political situation in Chad, I welcome Dr. Daniel Isinger. Dr. Izinga is a research fellow at the Africa Center for Strategic Studies. His research primarily focuses on countering violent extremism in the Sahel, the intersecting role of civil-military relations, traditional institutions, and civil society on political stability in African states. His research on Chad has been featured in the Africa Center for Strategic Studies Spotlight series as part of the OECD's West Africa Papers, the Centre franco Pairs Bulletins, the United States Institution for Peace Resolve Network Research Briefs, and the Africa Research Institute's election briefings. Dan holds a Ph.D. and an M.A. in political science with a specialization in African Studies from the University of Florida. He has also conducted extensive fieldwork in the Francophone African Sahel, primarily in Chad, Burkina Faso, and Senegal. Africa. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at the Africanist one at the Africanist P1, the letter P and the number one. More importantly, don't forget to share the links to the podcast with your friends on social media. All right. Well, thank you very much, Dan, and welcome to The Africanist. And today, uh, I am very pleased to talk with you about, uh, the recent situation in, in Chad. So. On April 20th, we learned the shocking news that Chad's president, Idris Deby, died uh, following injuries sustained while he was leading his army uh, against rebel forces in northern Chad. And uh, a day before his death, he was actually re-elected uh, for a sixth term as president of Chad. What else do we know so far about Deby's death?
1: Uh well um it's being reported that he was uh that, that he was injured uh, in a place called uh Nuku. Um and this is a, a really small sort of municipality or district in uh Kanem region. And Kanum region is uh an area of northwestern Chad uh, that borders Niger uh and it borders Lakh Province, uh, the the Chadian territory around uh Lake Chad. And the vast majority of Condom Region is, is basically just desert. Um, and he was injured, uh, as he confronted, uh, the rebel forces, uh, known as the FAC, the Front for Political Change Concord and Concord in Chad, I think. And I'm, I'm sorry, I'm blanking on the, the French, uh, name. But, uh, yeah, so this, this is a, a rebel group. Um, they've been around since 2016, but the, the leader of the group, Muhammad Mahdi Ali, has been around for much longer than that. And, uh, they've been committed to trying to oust Debbie from power, uh, since 2016. And, um, yeah, Debbie came to support his, his troops to try and boost morale, uh, went to the front. This is something that he's known for doing, um, and sustained injuries there and was evacuated to N'Djamena. Um, the exact circumstances under which he sustained injuries is, is still a little unclear and it's possible we'll never really know. Um, but it's being reported or at least officially from the, uh, the national armed forces, the Chadian armed forces, uh, he was, um, he was shot on the front and then evacuated and, and, uh, succumbed to his injuries.
0: Now, uh, could you walk us through, uh, Debbie's ascent to power in his 30 year rule as Chad's president?
1: Absolutely. Um, uh, so Debbie has just a really long, uh, history with the, the, military. And so even before he came to power, um, he was being trained as part of the National Armed Forces. Um, when he, he as, as part of that training, he went to the officer school in N'Djamena. From the officer school in N'Djamena, he was then sent to France to do further training as an officer. Um, he received a sort of qualification as a, as a, a pilot. And when he returned to N'Djamena, Um, you know, Chad was basically in the throes of civil war. Um, and that civil war was characterized by, um, many different rebel factions uh, coming from northern and eastern Chad, as well as the sort of, uh, southern government and, uh, the, what had been then the national armed forces, just predominantly, uh, predominantly made up of southerners. Um, Debbie, in this context of civil war, sort of threw his hat in with Isin Habre. Who was the leader of, uh, FAN, uh, Forces Armées du Nord. And, uh, uh Habre eventually kind of came to power. In coming to power, Debbie played a key role. Uh, and so he was promoted right away to be sort of the commander in chief of Habre's armed forces, or the Forces Armées Nationales Chadienne. Uh, so right away in 1982, when Habre sort of finally claimed control of N'Djamena, Debi was promoted up into this position, leading the armed forces, um, and then he was one of Habré's right-hand men for a very long time, uh, really up until the end of Habré's regime. Um, and and the, their falling out was around a, a coup plot, or at least they were. You know, Debbie and two other uh, of his kinsmen, Hassan uh, Jamos and um, uh, Mohammed Itno. Uh, respectively, the, uh, chief of the military in 1989 and the minister of interior for Abre. Uh, the three of them were all accused of plotting a coup. Um, and so, uh, Abre had, uh, Hassan Jamus and, uh, Mohammed Itno arrested. They died in detention. Debbie escaped. Uh, and after escaping, he fled to sort of the, the part, uh, well, he fled to where he's from in Chad, Eastern Chad. Um, it's sort of analogous to Darfur, uh, borders the parts of Sudan that are Darfur, um, and Debbie fled to Darfur. Um, from there, he kind of coordinated with a number of his kinsmen to establish his own rebellion, um, and that rebellion was able to generate enough support uh, to oust Aubrey from power in 1990, and uh, Debbie, Debbie took power uh, December 2nd, 1990.
0: Since he came to power, In 1990, so it's been 30 years that he had been ruling the country. What did he achieve?
1: Well, um, uh, I mean, it depends on how you would look at it. Uh, I guess what I would say is that you know, Debbie's Debbie's real legacy uh, is one of just ongoing instability. Um, You know, he he promoted himself as this stabilizer, and I think that that is just a mischaracterization through and through of what Debbie's regime was for Chad. Um, and in fact, if you were to look closely at his time in power, it is punctuated by rebellions. It's punctuated by coup attempts. It's punctuated by civil unrest, human rights abuses. Uh, and, and just, you know, it, there's no way to look at the domestic political situation in Chad under Debbie and walk away thinking this is a, a stable, prosperous regime. I think it's quite the opposite that what Debbie accomplished was just a, you know, uh, the enactment of multi-party elections, uh, trying to establish a multi-party electoral system. But in reality, it's really just window dressing. And uh, over a 30 year period, you just see him further and further concentrate power within the executive and further and further establish himself as the sole power over the executive branch. Uh, and so despite all of these, efforts at trying to enact a, a liberal democratic uh, political system, or at least in name, uh it's really just uh window dressing, it's a facade. Uh and the authoritarianism that characterized Debbie's regime uh is also characterized by just inherent instability. Uh and so what we're seeing today is the legacy of Debbie. I mean really that instability is what caused his death. Uh you know the the, the lack of political space uh, the the culture of political violence and conflict uh, is are, are, are things that only contribute to uh, the the sentiment that rebellion or by taking power by force is the only possibility, the only outcome. Uh, and so the rebellion that Debbie set out to confront with his troops uh, is a byproduct of the authoritarianism that characterized his rule. Uh, and so I think that Instead of looking at it in terms of what Debbie accomplished in that 30-year period, I would look at it in terms of you know what he was able to cover up. And and like I said, I think he just covered up uh, uh, you know significant political instability at the domestic level uh, over a 30-year period.
0: Like you said uh, earlier, so Chad is very prone to rebellion, and this since uh the achievement of its independence in nineteen sixty in in two thousand eight, for instance, Debbie almost lost the power due to a rebel attack in the capital city in Yamena, and thanks to uh, the intervention of the French army, the rebels were pushed back and similarly in two thousand and nineteen, rebel groups also believed to have come from uh, Libya attacked Chad again, and once again, the French army intervened. So could you tell us a little more about these rebel groups and what are their demands? What do they want?
1: Sure. I guess, like you, I think you said it rightfully, uh, right from the beginning that you know, really since independence in 1960, Chadian politics has been characterized by, uh, armed rebel groups, uh, and armed opposition. Um, there's a long history behind many of the different groups. Um, you noted the, the, uh, 2008 event. Um, you know, February tw- 2008, you had three different rebel factions come together in sort of a loose coalition. Uh, they laid siege to the presidential palace in N'Djamena for three days. Uh, and Debbie refused to back down, refused to surrender. Uh, the rebels didn't have a clear Uh, sort of strategy for who would take over if they were able to get him to surrender or if they, if they did oust him by force. Uh, and so as a result, the French and, uh, Chadian armed forces eventually were able to push them out of, of N'Djamena. Um, those, that loose coalition of rebel groups, uh, sort of the antecedent, uh, for today's current, uh, set of different rebel actors. Um, you have kind of four known rebel factions that have, um, profited from safe haven in southern libya um in the sort of 2010s um uh, i guess i'll start with the fact or uh, you know the one that i that i mentioned earlier the front for for political change in concord and concord in chad um uh led by uh mohammed mahadi ali uh he took part in the 2008 siege uh he's been around for a very long time has had uh, sort of refugee status in france Uh, for over two decades, um, but has been committed to, uh, to, to, you know, rebellion and trying to oust the Debbie regime from power. Um, and that's something that is, it's in his family. So it's come from his father. His father was a, a rebel. They both have held leadership, uh, roles in different rebellions. Um, and so there's just a long history there. And they have said very clearly, well, I guess immediately once, so, once Devi died, the, there was um, uh, the establishment of this mil- transitional military council. We will talk about more, um, and they they quickly rejected that as just a, an extension of the Devi regime. Um, they then offered to try and engage in dialogue and negotiation, and the, this military council has since refused that. And so they, the, I think that. Uh, Basically, what that means is that they remain uh, in conflict. They remain in uh, in a posture of trying to oust uh, the the military council and the Davi regime. Overall, um, there are three other groups, uh, three other rebel groups. The, the the Union of Resistance Forces or Union de, de Force de la Resistance. Um, you have the um, Conseil de Commandement Militaire pour le Salut de la République, uh, the CCMSR um and then um union of uh, forces for democracy and development so the, the union des forces pour la Démocratie et le développement um and these three groups are are uh they've they've never aligned with the fact uh despite all sort of having some role in southern libya at different times um uh, you know they represent sort of different ethno regional blocks in chadian politics um they've never really been able to agree on a strategy uh, but they're all uh, working to try and take political power, um, and you know the the way that Debbie had governed, the way that Idris Debbie governed during his thirty year rule, was such that there really was no other way for anyone to take power or win power or, or legitimately gain power other than uh, the use of force and and confronting Debbie uh, in rebellion. And so that's just that's just a uh, I think, uh, perpetuated these rebel groups. And, um, I guess I should, I, I can, I can note some details. Uh, but the, the bottom line is that, you know, each, each of these rebel groups, uh, has been militating for pushing out the Debbie regime, uh, for several years. Many of them have history going back to the two thousands. Um, some of them are comprised of, of, family members of Idris Debbie himself. Um, and, and so, yeah, it's just a, it's just an ongoing, uh, Dilemma that faces, uh, Chad today that, uh, you know, there is insecurity baked into the system, uh, that the the political system, uh, for Chadian politics right now. And there's, there needs to be some sort of trajectory found that can get out of that, uh, that isn't the use of force if we're ever going to, uh, have a, a hope for sustainable stability, sustainable security. A hope for peace for, for Chadian c- citizens.
0: So you, you mentioned, uh, the military, uh, the transitional military council, which is currently led by Debbie's son, uh, Mohammed, uh, Muhammad Idris Debi Etno. What do we know so far about the people behind? Because it's not only, uh, Debi's son. There is a group of generals, uh, who are also backing him. What do we know about the Transitional Military Council and why is it contentious?
1: Sure. Well, uh, uh, I'll start with the first or I'll start with the the last question you raised, if that's okay. I think the reason it's so contentious is that this is very much a military coup. Uh, This is a coup d'etat in a a very uh, clear sense that uh, a group of military leaders has banded together in a junta and declared that The political institutions of the country are dissolved. Uh, and so there's just a a complete departure from, uh, constitutional government. And that is, you know, for all practical purposes, the definition of a coup d'etat. Uh, and it's not being called that, uh, by many different actors. Um, you know, whether it's Chad's international partners, whether it's, uh, some of Chadian some some of the the regional partners that are really important to Chad's uh, politics and stability, uh, you know whether whether it's by even uh, some of the domestic political actors that are supporters of of Debbie's political party, the 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 MPS. You know, all these actors are refusing to to call this what it is, and it's a coup d'état. Uh, and so I think that that's contentious um, because the political opposition is rightly calling it such. It's the political opposition has come out to call it a coup d'état. Um, and so that's, that's, you know, just the, from a, from a starting point, there's, there's no way to claim that this military council, transitional military council, has any real legitimate claim, uh, to governance, uh, in, in any sort of constitutional sense. Um, you know, they have, they've taken power by force and, uh, they, they clearly believe that they can do so without provoking uh, an international or regional response that would that would in any way invalidate that claim so I think that that's highly problematic it sets a, a really poor standard um, it's also you know indicative of this concentration of power in an autocratic system um, and all of that it just breeds in my mind further instability more insecurity uh, and and so I, I think that that's the the problematic side of it what we can say about the composition of the, of the military council is just uh, very few surprises. Uh, many of the generals that comprise the, the council are heavy hitters from Debbie's regime. Um, it suggests that, you know, they, they've banded together and, uh, decided that, uh, Muhammad Idris Debi is the, the best chance of at least, uh, initially putting forth a sort of continuity uh between the you know from Idris Deby uh and, you know, this is a this is a very clear statement that they're trying to maintain the regime uh and I think that that's the, the 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 message um in terms of what we know about the transition i think it's still coming together they've uh they've professed to uh be committed to holding uh, multi-party elections in 18 months and so transferring power back to civilian rule in that time frame, but I would point out that you know military governments have very little competence when it comes to actually governing, much less organizing elections, uh, much less responding to economic shots, shocks, shocks. Um, and so the the likelihood of this military council being able to govern in any kind of effective way and uphold its commitments uh, to free and fair, legitimate, uh, multi-party elections in eighteen months, I think, is quite low. Uh, particularly given the just immediate challenges that they're facing, uh, in, in terms of, uh, rebel groups, in terms of, uh, violent extremist threat from, uh, from neighboring countries, in terms of just general instability, uh, in the broader region. Uh, this, these are all factors that are not, uh, conducive to stability and, and would require, uh, legitimate civilian government with folks that actually have, uh, training and competence in crafting policy to address those kinds of challenges. And I don't think there's very much within the Chadian Armed Forces that suggests that they have those kinds of skills and competencies. So I find it to be very worrying.
0: Uh, recently, we learned that the Conseil de transition militaire or uh, transitional military council refused to negotiate with the rebels. What does it mean for the future of Chad? Uh, should we expect more clashes in the coming days?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's a pretty loud statement that says uh, we're not interested in uh, going to the, the negotiating table uh with any anyone who's professed re- a professed rebellion or pr- a professed a rebel group and and that's a you know i don't know it's a it's a pretty strong statement to say that they've excluded any possibility of negotiation with uh with anyone in the rebellion um it it, it suggests that they're uh not interested in any kind of inclusive transition Uh, they're not interested in, uh, trying to negotiate a ceasefire and, and ultimately peace. Uh, they're, they're, and, and should the rebel groups decide that they are going to mount in a a continued attack, uh, that they will respond with force. And, um, that's very worrying for me as an an outside observer and analyst just to think about what the implications of that are, uh, because, uh, I you know I'm not sure that that's uh, I'm not sure that that's going to be the uh the best outcome right I I think that uh you know, what's the famous phrase war is is politics by other means or by violent means or so, something along those lines and I, I th- this should be the last uh you know last possible solution right I, I if if I were a Chadian citizen I would want uh, my government to be working towards the most peaceful solution as quickly as possible, uh, and so the the statement that uh, the military council has made that they exclude any possibility of negotiation after the rebel group announced that it would be willing to dialogue, it, it just suggests to me that there's very little room for negotiation, very little political space for anything other uh, than conflict, and. Uh, and so, yeah, it's worrying because I think that it sets the stage for further insecurity. It, it, it's almost, it's almost a, uh, uh, you know, it almost provokes insecurity in and of itself. Um, and, and I think that it, it puts, um, you know, Chad's partners, it's whether, whether they be sort of Western partners like France or the United States or, uh, you know, uh, any, any other sort of international community type partners, UN, AU, uh, you know, the economic community of, of Central African states, you know, it, it puts all of those actors in a really uncomfortable position, uh, that, you know, the Chadian government's not interested in finding a solution. They're interested in, uh, in just, uh, using force to force a solution. Um, and it, and it puts Chad's neighbors in an uncomfortable position too. You know, there have been some reports that, um, uh, besides southern Libya, that, uh, fighters for the fact have used parts of Eastern Niger, uh, to try and, and avoid detection and, and, avoid confrontation with Chadian forces. And so it puts Niger in a really uncomfortable position where, you know, you have this newly elected president, Amin Bazoum, and, uh, he, you know, he, he, you know, what, what, what is he supposed to do in this situation that the rebels have said they want to talk? And this military council, uh, what is, you know, Clearly an illegitimate government in N'Djamena has, has refused that. And, um, so I just, it just leaves very little, there, there, there seem to be very few options, uh, for uh, trying to work towards peace, trying to work towards stability in this situation.
0: But is it because they kind of, uh, animated with a sentiment of revenge? Because who want to negotiate with a group that just killed President of a country. And then, and, and, and one of the things I actually learned recently is that, uh, the council is calling for Niger to actually help push the rebel back from the, the borders. And they are, I guess, looking to either arrest or kill, uh, Mohammed Mahdi Ali, who is the leader of the fact. So is it because of just a, a personal sentiment of revenge? That these uh, people are refusing to go to the negotiation table.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, 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 it's very hard to know. Obviously, I'm not, you know, I'm not part of the inner circle, uh, and so I, I can't speak to what the calculation is within the military council. Uh, but it's certainly plausible when you look at the makeup, right? I mean, Devi's son, Mohammed, is the the current de facto head of state, the leader of the military council. Um, he's surrounded by longtime supporters of his father, um, and, and all of them are military men. Uh, and so it's certainly plausible that there is an element of, you know, we're not going to we're not going to back down here. Uh, you know, this this is this is something that they're refusing to do. Uh, I think what's more important to take away from this is that uh, this is part of a cycle, uh, you know, Conflict, uh, political violence—these are uh, the elements that have been that have characterized Chadian politics for decades now, if not going all the way back uh, to Chadian independence, right? And and so it's it's while it may seem very unlikely, while it may seem uh, you know uh, almost uh, like it, it makes no sense to to hope for this. Uh the truth is that unless you stop that cycle, uh it's just going to continue to perpetuate itself. And so there have to be efforts at things like dialogue and negotiation in order to stop that sort of cycle. Um and so there, the, it's 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 one thing to recognize that the political culture does not lean its lend itself to uh negotiation, it does not lend itself to um uh you know to laying down arms. Uh, uh, to trying to work through an inclusive process uh, that can establish some sort of rules-based uh, political system. But the truth is that for a peaceful, stable, prosperous Chad, there needs to be a reimagining of the political system that does include a broader segment of Chadian society, if not all segments of Chadian society. And that means it will have to include former rebel fighters. Uh, it will have to include... Uh, you know, the current, the current military council. Um, if you're not able to have all parties buy into this kind of a rules-based system, then it will never stand. And, and so that's, that's really the, the best hope, I think, for Chad right now. And if, if I were one to dictate international policy, I would be trying to pressure this military council to stand down and recognize that because in the long term, it's their best hope for a peaceful, prosperous life and system as well, right? Uh, it it, 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 this, this does not need to be a situation of, of just constant and increased insecurity. Uh, but if you continue to provoke that, it's, it's very easy for it to happen. And so I think that that's what, that's what we're faced with. And, um, I think anyone interested in chatty instability needs to recognize that. Uh, the last 30 years did not promote stability, uh, even though you had one party and essentially one person uh, in control. Uh, that entire 30-year period was, uh, as I've mentioned, punctuated by uh, instability, punctuated by political violence. It was an incredibly vulnerable, fragile system. Uh, and ultimately, it, it, it's not a shock that we've ended up in this situation. Uh, and so I think that recognizing that and trying to reimagine a way forward, uh, is, is where people need to be thinking now.
0: Uh, now let's talk about France, the position of France in, in the conflict. When the death of Debbie was announced, uh, France was the first or one of the first countries to officially support the transitional military council. Macron took part in the funerals. Uh, Jean-Yves Le Drian, who is the uh, French foreign min, uh, minister, also uh, came out with the official statement that they support uh, the transition. So did the uh, ambassador of France in Chad, who also went and met with uh, Mohamed uh, Idriss uh, uh, Idris Déby's son. So what did France gain? in maintaining or helping maintain Idris Deby in power for 30 years? And also, what do they hope to gain in supporting the transitional military council?
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I think you probably guess based on my earlier comments where, where I fall in, in terms of thinking about uh, the current French position. Um, I, I think it's short-sighted and highly problematic. Uh, it does not uh, augur well for Chadian stability in the long term, and I think that that is in French interests. Um, and so uh, I think that there's a calculation, in my mind, a miscalculation here, that by supporting the military council, it will produce continuity uh, from Idris Deby to his son, uh, and that that continuity uh, will provide stability. Uh, but as I've noted over and over that it's, it's, it, that's, that's a facade. There is no, it's silly to think through, uh, Chad as being stable. Um, and I think that what France gained from Idris Deby, uh, during his rule was a, uh, you know, uh, often a, a supporter in a region, uh, where France is not always the most popular. Uh, and importantly, it was a, it was a, a supporter in their security objectives. And so, um, you know, French military interventions in Mali in particular have received a lot of Chadian support. Um uh Debbie intervened alongside Nigerian forces uh, as part of Operation Serval in uh in 2013 in northern Mali. Um Chadian troops purportedly were crucial to ousting some of the militant Islamist groups that occupied the region of Kidal and the the, the uh urban center of Kidal in northern Mali at the time, uh, and uh, they apparently were some of the most effective troops on the ground in uh, in fighting uh, those extremists, uh, particularly in this very sort of arid and rugged territory. Um, uh, Chadian soldiers make up, a, I think, the second largest contingent of forces within the current uh, peacekeeping operation in, in Mali. Um, and a battalion of Chadian soldiers, as part of the Sahel G5 uh, Joint Force, uh, recently deployed to the tri-border zone between Burkina Faso, Mali, and Niger. So they, they've been a really important security partner for France, uh, as as you know, you know, there's a, a sort of uh, political narrative that, that France is enmeshed in, in a, uh, in, in, conflict, uh, and that, uh, its current counterterrorism operation, Operation Barkhan, which is headquartered in N'Djamena, but is actually most active in, in the tri-border zone. Uh, it, it, you know, there's a narrative that this is something that France can't get itself out of. And so needs to get more buy-in from its African partners. And, uh, you know, Idris Deby was always quick to support, uh, his, his French partners, his French allies in that respect. Um, and, and so uh, I think that that's what France saw in Idris Deby. Uh, but I don't think that it's necessarily as clear that under his son, Mohammed Idris Deby uh, that the, the military will be as responsive, that the military will be as coherent. Um, it's true that uh, Mohammed, uh, you know, Idris Debi's son, current leader of this military council, de facto head of state, you know, prior to this, this coup d'etat, he was commander of the, uh, Direction Générale de Service de Securité des Institutions de l'Etat. And, uh, to be excuses for l'action American. But, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the DGSSIE is sort of this elite force within the Chadian Armed Forces. It's at once a, a counterterrorism force that's deployed on these missions abroad, as well as sort of a Praetorian Republican Guard, uh, and, it, it's, it's, you know, also sort of like the, you know, sort of a military intelligence wing too. And so it, it, in addition to the counterterrorism deployments, it has been responsible for political repression at home that's targeted Debbie's, uh, you know, various political challengers over the years. Um, and it's, but, but the DGSSIE is just one component of the broader armed forces. And so I think this is the important point that while Muhammad Idris Debi may have you know pretty good standing within the DGSSIE it doesn't necessarily mean that he has the overall support of the armed forces and if the DGSSIE plunges Chad into you know what is essentially civil conflict with different rebel groups that could end up fragmenting the the armed forces uh in some pretty significant ways and so uh, i think it's just it, it it's a miscalculation to think that uh, by transferring, you know, support from what was Idris Deby's regime to now this military council's regime with Muhammad Idris Deby at the helm. Uh, I don't think that that transfer necessarily results in a continuity of stability. I think it may perpetuate increased instability, uh, throughout, uh, the next coming months. And, and, um, and so, yeah, I think that that's just the, that's, that's the way that I'm looking at it right now.
0: Mm-hmm. Now you, you mentioned uh, the G5 Sahel. Uh, on February 16, 2014, uh, the G5 Sahel was formed in uh, Nouakchott, Mauritania. And this organization gathers five countries, Mali, uh, Niger, Chad, Burkina Faso, and Mauritania. And the objective of it is to basically uh, fight jihadist threats in in the region. Now, out of these five countries, as you mentioned earlier, uh, Chad certainly or uh, seem to have the strongest army and a degree of commitment that is not matched by other countries who are member of the G5. Do you think that uh, the death of Debbie will change the priorities and the course of action that the G5 set out to take?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that it's, uh, it's still really early to know for sure, uh, what trajectories we're on in terms of the, the Sahel G5. Um, I think that, uh, you know, as you mentioned, uh, Chadian troops have been a really like crucial component of, uh, of operations. Um, but I think it's important to note that they only recently arrived, uh, to the tri-border area um you know there's the the contingent of chadian forces that are part of minusma the the UN peacekeeping mission in mali that have been there for a very long time in fact i think that chadian troops have made up uh, a significant if not always the the second largest contingent of the peacekeeping force since its establishment um but in terms of uh, chadian boots on the ground in the name of the sahel g5 joint force and them being deployed uh, to, uh, the, the tri-border zone, uh, the sort of area between Mali, Niger, and Burkina Faso, sometimes also referenced as, uh, Liptako Gorma, uh, that, you know, th- th- those troops have not been there for very long. I think they've only been there for a matter of months. Um, and so, uh, it's hard to know what the impact will be. Uh, it, to my knowledge, they haven't, um, they haven't been withdrawn. Uh, so the Chadian, Chadian military has not requested those troops uh, to come home at this point, but you know, given the amount of firepower and uh, the uh, troops that uh, the fact this, the rebel group that is responsible for the death of Idris Deby were able to marshal against the armed forces, I think it suggests that you know they 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 have some real uh, real military might uh, that presents a threat uh, to the Chadian armed forces at home, um, and so. Uh, given that that's the reality, um, you know, it's hard, hard to imagine that if that fight continues, if this rebellion, uh, you know, intensifies, uh, that there wouldn't be greater need, uh, for, uh, the, the well-trained and effective fighting force that the Chadian forces are, uh, back home. So it, it could easily change the direction of things. Um, and I suspect that, you know, among Chad, Chad's, Sahel G5 partners, uh, that that's not a desirable outcome uh, because I think that those troops are making a pretty big difference uh, in the the bigger fight uh, against the militant Islamist groups uh, that are in that area. Um, so, so I you know it, it, it's too soon to tell what the trajectory will be, um, and there are a lot of moving pieces. Um, but certainly the prospects for worsening insecurity in Chad. Um, you know, make it. They they increase the chances that there's going to be a greater need for Chadian forces to act on the domestic front, um, and and so they could be withdrawn. So I think that that's something that a lot of people will be watching uh, over the next months.
0: What are the risks of uh, civil conflict right now in Chad, given uh, the current situation?
1: Yeah, I, I mean, I think that uh, what we've got to recognize is that uh, there's always some risk of civil conflict in Chad, or at least there, there has been for a very long time. Uh, these rebel groups are not new, uh, but what has changed is that they, they may have, uh, you know, built up a bit of momentum here, right? Uh, they uh, they are now responsible for the death of Idris Debbie, and that's a very big deal. Uh, it's resulted in a huge reaction. Um, they've, they've made a very public overture to, to try and dialogue, and it's been rejected. And so that process, uh, is all, all of those things, in my mind, are only elements that increase the chance of civil conflict, uh, or at least increase the chances of further confrontation between the fact and Chadian armed forces. And so uh what what remains to be seen is whether or not the Chadian armed forces will continue to be coherent uh or whether they start to fragment and uh there are some indications that the the uh, military council does not have uh 100% across the board support from within the armed forces um and I guess the the reason that that's so problematic and 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 it's not All that surprising. I mean, if you think about it, right? We've already talked about during the show that uh, the French have had to step in on multiple uh, at multiple instances to to help the Chadian armed forces push back against rebel groups. But that suggests that the military is not all that coherent to begin with, right? Everyone talks about how strong and effective the Chadian armed forces are, uh, but when it comes to protecting uh, the capital, when it comes to protecting the regime. When it comes to fighting against the rebel groups at home, it doesn't appear to be that effective, does it? And, and so the question now is, uh, what do the rebels do next? Is this, is this going to motivate other rebel groups to try and align themselves with the fact, uh, so that there's a, a broader push, uh, to try and, and topple the military council and, and, and oust the Debbie regime? Uh, is, is this a sign that uh, the Chadian armed forces are going to start to fragment. And so you actually have what are essentially other rebel groups, uh, uh, you know, in other territories of the country. Uh, the, you know, the, the the amount of uncertainty that has been injected, uh, are, you know, in the wake of Idris Deby's death, I don't think can be understated. And I think that the most important thing to recognize is that it was really, it, it's been predictable. Uh, it is highly, it, there was no reason that, we shouldn't have realized that this was what the outcome would be. Um, Idris Deby's autocratic governance set the stage uh, for for this event, uh, and so the the, the you know the, the resultant instability, the resultant insecurity, uh, you know the the amount of uncertainty that now surrounds Chadian politics and the prospects for civil conflict in Chad uh, are are all a result. Of, of Idris Devi con- concentrating power in his authoritarian regime, uh, and and so I think that that's the that's the thing that everyone needs to be really focused on, uh, because perpetuating that means that we're going to be facing this problem again uh, in the future, and perhaps much more or much m- m- much earlier than than we did in the case of Idris Devi.
0: Usually, before I part ways with my uh, guests, I ask them, you know, lighthearted questions. Uh, the first one being, uh, your top three novels.
1: Uh, <laughs> you, you, you got me on the spot here, Bamba. Okay. Well, uh, I guess what I would say is that, um, well, the, the first two that jumped to mind, um, let's see, the, uh, it's, it's home going, right? Homegoing by Yaj Yasi. Yep. That's a, a a wonderful account. And I've, I've been more recently reading the, uh, what is sort of like a sequel, Mm -hmm. um, called uh, Transcendent Kingdom. Yeah. Um, and I'm really enjoying it. Uh, it's, it's very different, yet still, uh, brings up some of the same characters. And so it's, it's kind of like, uh, I don't know. It's, 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 it's a, it's refreshing, but at the same time uh, it's kind of neat to see the story continued. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I've been really enjoying it. Yeah. It's, it's just a, a yeah. Transcendent Kingdom kind of uh, deals with the same family. It's a, you know, an immigrant family uh, mm-hmm. folks from um, uh, that are, that are living in Alabama and in United States. And it just deals with a number of the different challenges that they're facing. And so you have issues of, of uh, mental illness, issues of addiction, uh, that all kind of come up in um, in this context, and um, the, the writing is just enthralling. I mean, every time I open it up, it's hard for me to put it back down. Um, so I would, well, I would, yeah, I would definitely recommend it. Okay. And, um, and, mm-hmm. You know, one book that I always really enjoyed was *Brave New World* by Aldous Huxley. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, and it's just, you know, it, it, it brings up a lot of issues, but uh, that one is one that I've kept. And I think I probably read it for the first time in like English literature in high school or something, right? It's mm. been around forever. But, um, but yeah, I've always really enjoyed, uh, Brave New World. I think okay. it raises issues that are still relevant for
0: us today. Awesome. Now, uh, top three dishes.
1: Like, uh, like meals. Meals. Yep. Well, you know, given that you're the host, I gotta say Chebujan, right?
0: Oh really? Are you just are, are you <laughs> no, just saying to
1: <laughs> I'm i I'm, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I do I do love my Cheb, but uh, Okay.
0: I mean uh, if you love Chebujan that's fine. Chebujan is, is let's, the, let's best, keep it there. It's the best dish in the world, I believe. <laughs> you know, as a good right, Senegalese. Can. I believe it's the it's the it's, it's the best dish <laughs> ever. <laughs>
1: I I will admit that uh, one of the first things I did upon arriving to uh, Washington, D.C. was I asked a colleague of mine Mm -hmm. um, who's done lots of research in Senegal, Kat Kelly, um, who she's worked extensively on uh, uh, political parties in Senegal. She's written a book on political parties in Senegal. And so one of the first things I did uh, was ask her, you know, where can I find the best chevijan here in Washington, D.C.? Good question. uh, Yeah. So I think that it warrants keeping in the top three um let's see uh uh, other dishes uh this -hmm. is hard because i like to cook um i guess i i I mean uh, maybe it's a little mundane but i really love making just a homemade pizza uh, crust and crust and everything so i'll uh i i keep um i like to bake i like to bake bread and so I, I keep a sourdough starter on hand and I use the sourdough starter to make my own pizza crust and nice. uh, make my own tomato sauce. And uh, that's always a, a huge hit here at home. And uh, it's like a staple for us. So uh, I'll keep that one on there. Um, and let's see. A third, third favorite dish.
0: You're almost there.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I w- I wonder if everyone struggles as much with this as me.
0: They right uh, they they do sometimes.
1: Yeah. Um
0: especially with the the novel thing.
1: Yeah, okay. <laughs> I, yeah you, are, you ca- I'm a you know a, like you said when we're immersed in in theory and and yeah. uh and sort of non-fiction all the time it's hard to think about fiction. Um I think that uh I'll go with the ever versatile taco as my Okay. Uh, my Classic. third dish yeah and i uh if i had to make a selection of at, at like what kind of taco i would go with a uh, a fish taco um fish taco with a spicy mango salsa nice um, and yeah so i think i'll make that my my third dish
0: awesome awesome and then the last question top three places you have visited or you would like to visit someday
1: um, let's see. So, I, uh, for my honeymoon, my wife and I traveled to Indonesia and, uh, we did a bit of island hopping while we were there. And so we did like the you know, big sightseeing, uh, sites like Java and, uh, and we visited Bali. Uh, but probably the coolest place we went was Makassar and it's on the island of Sulawesi it's a bit more remote than other parts of Indonesia and there were far fewer tourists i think you know i don't think, we hardly saw any tourists there uh and it was just really interesting because um you know a lot of Indonesia is geared up for tourism and that's fascinating you get a, like a it's a really it's really accessible um you can get a quick education on Indonesia very quickly um and they're very open and welcoming um and I uh, but I was so happy that we went to Sulawesi because uh it, it sort of it wasn't as accessible and it it seemed uh, you know just a bit more real and so I would love to go back to Sulawesi so that's definitely a top destination um I will say that uh during one of the times that I was in Chad, uh, I got to visit Abeshe. Um, and so I was, uh, every, every time that I've been in Chad, so I, I, spent, uh, uh, well, the longest time that I spent in Chad was for nine months. And I was based in N'Djamena, but I got to travel quite a bit. And one of the trips that I took was to Abeshe, which is in Eastern Chad. Um, and it's, it's much closer to the border with Sudan. And the, it's, it's very different culturally, cultural or culturally than the, uh, than the rest of the country. And it's something that I, you know, had read about, but definitely did not appreciate until I, I had the chance to visit. Um, and I had a, a, very positive experience there. A lot of, a lot of interactions with folks, um, at a university there. Uh, I think it was the University of Enerjumena, but in Obeshe. Uh, and it just really, like pleasant experience overall and I've always wanted to go back uh, but haven't had an opportunity to do so. Um, and then I guess a final one, uh, I uh, I once visited a friend in Mozambique uh, and so I've never done any research in Mozambique. Uh, you know, I've sort of just done general background reading and uh, so I knew a little bit about going there but he had lived there for several years. Um, and uh, he's also an American, but he married to a Mozambican. And um, I visited uh, for their wedding. And uh, it was just uh, like an amazing time. We spent mostly in Maputo. Uh, but the wedding uh, sort of celebration was at this uh, beach town, this small little beach town uh, on the coast in, in southern Mozambique. And uh, it was lovely. Uh, never been anywhere like it um i i you know imagine that it's it's something like the kasamons but uh i've never been to the kasamons and so maybe i'll add that here even though you said three i'll make the kasamons my like fourth and the kasamons is the place that i would want to go uh if given the opportunity so yeah many, I'll end it there. Of,
0: many of my guests uh want to go to kasamons
1: I, 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 have no doubt. And so
0: I, I, su- I myself want to go there. I live in Senegal, but haven't had the chance to go there. So, but it's, uh, top of my list. Wow. <laughs>
1: maybe, maybe we can meet there one day. Definitely. Definitely. <laughs> that,
0: that would be awesome. Definitely. And on that note, uh, I want to thank you very much, Dr. Daniel Isenga, uh, for, being my guest on the show and for talking with us about the current uh, situation in chat I really appreciate it and uh, I hope that uh, you will come back sometime soon to tell us more about your research and also more about the situation in chat so thank you very much and thank you to my listeners Uh, this is the Africanist and I give you Rendezvous for a new episode with a another special guest on the Africanist uh, sometime soon. Thank you very much. <laughs>